from when you've had young people in particular in here that show that by putting something in, making it more visual, more interactive, people are asking very different questions about the science behind something. Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech podcast and this series episode of the VocTech podcast Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures who made this new series possible. You can follow online at hashtag VocTech and at Podcast EdTech on Twitter, where we've just hit over 10,000 followers. Yippee! Right, this week I'm in conversation with Dr. Becky Sage, CEO at Interactive Scientific. Not only is Becky evolving the world of collaborative drug design through the use of technology, but in her spare time, she's casually winning the adult British championships in gymnastics. Not bad when most of us can't even do a handstand, let alone visualise drug compounds in 3D. This recording was made in Bristol, where Becky and I dove into a quiet meeting room in the middle of the Interactive Scientific Strategy Day. We talk about the long-haul marathon race of being an entrepreneur, the role of upbringing in work ethics and different ways of looking at science. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you'd like to be included in the next episode in our listener feature, just say hello, who you are and what you do in our 90 second voicemail platform at speakpipe.com, the EdTech podcast. Okay, here we go. I got the 6.25am train from Plymouth to Bristol this morning, which was a delight, cross-country and very beautiful and very sunny. And I'm now at the engine shed. I keep calling it the engine rooms or something else, I'm not sure, but it's definitely the engine shed at Bristol Temple Meads. And I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Becky Sage, CEO of iScientific. So welcome, uh, Interactive Scientific. As a little introduction... I'm going to read a little bit about Interactive Scientific and about Becky, and then we'll go into our interview today. So as via your website and LinkedIn and so on, it says, at Interactive Scientific Limited, we create immersive digital tools for science research and science education. Our products use the best in digital design and innovative approaches to enable people with challenges in science to solve their problems with computational tools. Our technology, NanoSimbox, is being used by researchers in drug design, energy and materials chemistry using virtual reality, cloud-based simulation and web-based management tools to enable and facilitate experimentation, collaboration and understanding. It goes on to say, I have led the company as we have developed NanoSimbox. Our ultimate goal is to bring the excitement and beauty of science to all, enabling current and future generations of scientific researchers to solve 21st century problems with 21st century tools. And then finally, I believe in connecting the full scientific ecosystem to the societal challenges that are underpinned by science research and developing a more diverse workforce with the scientific skills, confidence and intuition to build a healthy, sustainable future. We've won a number of awards for innovation and we have generated approximately 1.5 million GBP to seed the development of the company. I was the winner of the InFocus Women in Innovation Award, a finalist in the HSBC Forward Ladies Award and finalist in the Wise Women in Science Tech Startups Awards. And in addition to running the company, I'm a keen gymnast and actress, winning the Adult British Championships in Gymnastics in 2017 and 2018. So welcome, Becky. Hi. 
Hey, hey. That's quite Thank the you. intro. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of things <laughs> that we've got going on there. Yeah. Take a moment and take stock that, uh, hang on, you won the British Championships in gymnastics <laughs> in 2017, 2018. I think we've known each other probably for that long. So that sounds like a pretty epic achievement. Could you tell me um, what that involved and what that meant to you as well? Yeah, meant a lot to me so I should say it's the adult British championships so you know don't don't get too much of a picture in your head of as to how um apt I am (laughs) at gymnastics but it's something I was a gymnast growing up and when I was about eight or nine I was like I really want to go to the Olympics and I want to be a high level gymnast and the reality was that that was not my path and so I stopped uh, gymnastics when I was in my early 20s and then went back in my 30s and started training uh, and wanted something to work towards so um, started to work towards this British Championships and I had absolutely no idea of the kind of standard that I was going to be up against particularly that first year that I went and competed in 2017 and I ended up coming out with the gold so uh, it was a very proud moment Uh, yeah so you kind of belittled it a little bit by saying it's the adult (laughs) British so I suppose what that means is you're not in the Olympics I'm not in the elite track um shall we still it's pretty I would say that still sounds very um yeah top of the country (laughs) for my age yeah that's amazing (laughs) did you win any kind of prize money from that or how did that uh... no just a nice nice medal which I have framed on on my wall (laughs) because it does mean a lot to me well and so some people will be thinking ribbons and balls and all of that and no no um so in fact if you look at my instagram then you can you can check out some videos on my instagram um the four pieces artistic gymnastics floor vault beam and bars that's what I compete on and are you still training and yeah I am so I actually have three weeks until the 2019 British Championships so I am I don't know the pressure is on a little bit to try and retain my title but we'll see and do you have like a particular piece of music that you like to I do yeah Yeah, I have a new piece of music it's from Final Fantasy this time around I was using Feeling Good the last two years (laughs) which is kind of a cool one to dance to but I wanted something new for this year do you have a favorite gymnast oh that's a really good question um so I really like Ali Reisman, who's from America. She's uh, She's been an Olympian. She's a retired gymnast now. Uh, but she was also very much involved in speaking up for all the gymnasts that went through um, kind of this big sexual abuse yeah, thing that went yeah. on. So, so I kind of admire her from the point of view of her being a, a gymnast who obviously had to work really hard to... Uh, get to what, where she got to but also from the point of view that she has stood up and, and advocated for yeah. women and girls and their kind of safety within sport as well yeah so I've got here you're winning gymnastics trophies and smashing out being a CEO <laughs> what made you this person <laughs> wow what made me this person so I well, the, to get a bit poignant I, I did a speech at my grandfather's funeral a couple of weeks ago and he got described as um well I just described him as disruptive so um that, that, that there was certainly a streak of shall we say innovation and wanting to make a change that yep. came from him um and and I think on the flip side of that my parents were both were both teachers and have both really been advocates of just doing things really well and doing things for people and kind of having high expectations from an academic perspective but also as you know like I said kind of giving back and and giving to people so I think my upbringing and my family and I have a massive extended family as well uh, are a big part of of me feeling like I 
just wanted to get out there and achieve and do things that are going to make a difference. But I obviously have a bit of a A type <laughs> personality going on. As well. I was going to say as well. So for anyone who's like struggling with their time management, mm. do you have any tips on fitting in sort of training and? Yeah, and I kind of flipped it a little bit because I think uh, when you are in the role of CEO, your job never ends, that your task list is could fill however much time mm-hmm. that you have. So one of the things I've actually been really conscious of is how do I make sure I kind of have a pizza of life or a wheel of life with all these different segments in it. And I think by doing that, that makes me a better CEO because it means that I can, I can step back. Uh, when I go to gymnastics, I train a few times a week and and a couple of hours when I when I train and doing that is the the time I switch off and and I think that's really important and so so I think it's it isn't a case of like how do I fit all of this stuff in it's a case of saying well if I didn't mm-hmm. then would I have my mind healthy enough to be CEO because isn't it better to make good decisions than than to just be doing a lot of work all the time. And do you feel like that's something you've always kind of worked on or has that been a relatively Mm. recent development? Because for me, I'm 36 now and I'd say that that's, I've probably started to hone in on that in the last year. Yeah, I'm a similar age to you. So it's, and it's, and it is a relatively recent development and it's, it's taken kind of going through waves of really hitting that, those periods of exhaustion of of stuff that feels like burnout and realising that I'm not, necessarily doing things with the best perspective to to have stepped back and having the right supporters around me as well the right team the right mentors the right the people who are who actually are not afraid to to stand up and say stop doing this yeah, you know yeah. so and I think that has taken a long time I was not like that I was complete opposite I was like you you have to just work hard all of the time and yeah, and yeah. if you're not if you don't you're gonna fail and and actually I think that yeah that that's where anything that I might see as a failure as actually came from as opposed to <laughs> the parts where I've stepped back and well, looked after myself. I think I, I saw Angela McFarlane speak recently on a panel and mm. I thought she's amazing because she was talking about the the hero narrative of our education mm. system and you can work really hard and you can get your A stars and yeah. you know then you go to university work really hard there but no one tells you that actually if you try and do that for the rest of your life you will not yeah last it out so absolutely and that really sits behind a lot of my Mm. motivation for what we do at ISO because I came out of a PhD in chemistry and suddenly was like well now what And, and the whole thing I was used to doing which was kind of proving how intelligent I was mm. that didn't fly in the working world and and also kind of thinking I don't even want to say anything unless I think it's 100% yeah. right or seeing everything as black and white and and that's really not the world we live in we live in kind of something that's full of subtleties and gray areas so a lot of how I would like to you know approach uh, science learning science training is to realize that it's not about kind of that knowledge retention and and just kind of super overachieving it's mm-hmm. like actually what are the goals that we need to solve and how are we going to do that together well actually that's funny so <laughs> I've put here so another part that I was reading yesterday so I is an opportunity for me to create change so obviously change mm. is important to you change in the way we do science yeah. education change in scientific research environments and change in the way science is communicated and explored by everyone so <laughs> My question being, what's the biggest change you've been able to affect or that you have experienced? Wow, that's a really good question. But to the second part of the question, like seeing change that's been affected, I think, or that is starting to affect me is to do with gender equality Mm -hmm. and what it is to be a woman leading 
a business and uh, especially in the startup world actually because you you are so reliant on other people buying into what you do mm-hmm. and and there's a terrible uh, record of VCs oh, investing in female yeah. founders and and you can see why when you go in and people it's even the kind of analogies that you might use and mm-hmm. the the experiences you draw from um the shared experiences they're just not there for me often <laughs> so you walk into a room and feel like you're talking to people who are so different from you that you you know, and part of it actually comes back to that super overachiever because you walk in and you're trying to impress these people. And actually what you really want is a conversation with people. And so you kind of need to feel that there's some degree of comfort within the group that you're presenting to on the on the VC side. So you mentioned in the intro, I was one of the winners of the Innovate Women in Innovation Awards. And that was uh, two years ago now, 2017. And, and nearly three years ago, actually, when I found out that, that I'd been one of those winners. And that was the first time that I came into a room with a peer group that was predominantly female. And so, and I say predominantly female, I mean more than just two of us in a room of like 15, 20, whatever. Like a little novelty. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so what was really interesting about that was the story that came up over and over again with that peer group was, yeah, when I was early on in my career in science or technology or some kind of innovative area, I had to switch off who I was. And that's very much what I felt like when I was doing my PhD, when I was early on in my career, I couldn't be me. And I've, and I've had situations even more recently where I was very much shot down for showing my personality and had, people tried to use that kind of as a, as a flaw. So the major change that I'm seeing is that we are, that, that there are shifts going on, especially, like I said, as things to do around with inclusion and and I am experiencing something that is feeling more included what I don't know is if that's to do with my working trajectory and the fact that my profile's raised and um kind of you start to build up some of these accolades a little bit or you get known by people and then you are not treated in you know you're treated in a slightly better way than you would have been previously so but that's definitely a change I've seen and I think as a whole in society, there's definitely much more dialogue going on around it. Yeah, I think maybe some people that, that would previously have just kind of um, talked without thinking are starting to think, oh, what will the repercussions of that be if I mm-hmm. carry on in that way? Yeah. Um, I was having a conversation with a lady just last week who pointed out some of the well-known edtech unicorns out there are actually female-led. Mm. But how often do we talk about that? Like, you know, VIP yeah. um, kid, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. Um, there's a disparity in perhaps how that's... Uh, yeah, it's, I've uh, observed that as well. And I wonder that there's definitely been times when I felt a bit more comfortable in... Because uh, we work across education and enterprise within mm-hmm. science. And so I definitely have had times, yeah, when I feel more comfortable in, a, in an education space. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's, uh, that's partly because of that. And I always think it's dangerous when we're sort of saying, give us equality in the sense of, we want to work in the way that men work. So I, I no, think it's yeah. totally different. I think the opportunity, I mean, I was, I was looking at the skills gap on the way, on the train, on the mm. way here and reading about that. And I've, I've been invited to speak at the Barbican Battle of Ideas thing. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking about AI and education. And, you know, we talk about the skills gap, but we've got this huge untapped potential of the female workforce, yeah. which if you just slightly change the way people work, you could, you know, there's a huge potential there. Absolutely. So. And I think that that's where 
you know, for Interactive Scientific being a female-led business, um, we talk a lot about collaboration and communication and how can we use tools that drive collaboration and communication uh, as opposed to kind of an individual mm -hmm. who is excelling in a certain thing. And of course, kind of industry is, is built into that, but the processes don't actually work in that way a lot of the time. And, and thinking about corporate training as well. So mm -hmm. if, you know, female leadership doesn't include that digital skills piece, then mm -hmm. that, that gap will you know, yeah, extend as well. Absolutely. And like you said, it's especially when we're starting to talk about AI and machine learning. I mean, we all know that if, if you've only got one small subset of people who are developing yeah developing the algorithms or feeding the algorithms mm. then you, you're going to end up with an extremely biased system it's going to polarize these effects rather than the other way around case but. point being that you know one of the best used skills for alexa is you know fart noises <laughs> i mean i just think <laughs> when i anyway um you graduated with a phd in chemistry mm -hmm. in 2008 yep what is a chemistry fact every listener should know about <laughs> 2008 was a long time ago chemistry fact so I think uh, what, what are the common misconceptions oh I know okay so a really common misconception or something that people don't really realize or certainly don't think about is the fact that molecules move <laughs> um that's that very much sits in chemistry that we think of chemicals and chemistry as a very man-made thing but actually, chemistry sits behind everything we do. We're made of chemicals. It's the, actually, you know, atoms, molecules. That is what all of nature is built of. And they're these amazing dynamic particles that, that yeah, are, are responsible for, for the, our lives. <laughs> well, I think this is really fascinating because, you know, we like to think that we are kind of self-determined individuals. And then there's this mm. idea of the selfish gene. And now there's the idea that Actually, before that idea that you think you've come up with, probably you're driven by hormones and by molecular yeah. changes and all of this. And All I would say is I think that there is what any great scientist knows, and I'm certainly not putting myself in that category, but um, is that there is so much more unknown than there is known. Mm -hmm. So whilst, you know, there are all these scientific laws and, and they are followed, but a lot of that is is also built on kind of prob probabilities and the fact that things are acting as a whole system. And mm -hmm. so there is so much space for things that we still don't know and probably in none of our lifetimes we're ever, yeah, ever yeah. going to know. So I think that for me as, as somebody who thinks about things in quite an analytical fashion and likes to have a lot of evidence and, and is certainly respectful of the scientific process and, and scientific evidence, I also think there's space for us to observe and experience so many more things than can just be like explained by mm -hmm. the science we know right now oh, yeah. so I think there's these again it's kind of yeah the reality is we exist in gray well, areas. Well I think going back to gymnastics and mm. your you know interactive scientific is this idea previously we'd think of like body and mind completely separately mm. and actually you know they do inform one another yeah. and having nourishing your body is just as important for, to come up with those good ideas absolutely well. yeah I can remember way back I used to work at the Royal Society of Chemistry and some of us played squash before work and it was that whole thing of well you or it's you know going out and doing walking meetings or whatever it might be and and how you are on that that different just everything is different when when you're kind of focusing on something that's a bit more physical than than really kind of getting your head yeah. into that mental space and I've never been good at thinking through a problem I kind of have to like do some kind of action and if that doesn't work then I have to go away and like let the ideas it's come to me down. yeah and I was actually talking to um 
someone who works in the careers at uh, Oxford University and he sent me uh, this article all about the, just the depth of our subconscious and how, how important it is to understand that you know, the, the, these things that we can kind of very obviously cognitively think through are not necessarily uh, like where most of the work is going on. Most of it's going on in our subconscious and all these millions of bits of data that we're receiving all the time. And that's where our good ideas are going to come from if we allow them to oh, come through. Yeah. So we will get on to corporate <laughs> training, but I'm enjoying all these other yeah, questions this as well. <laughs> uh, what was your PhD about? Mm. Um, so the title of my PhD was Mass Spectrometric Analysis of Laser Ablation Plumes. Well, and I've got here, what the hell is laser ablation? <laughs> yeah. Laser ablation is actually a really simple concept. <laughs> um, you fire a laser at something that's solid and then a whole bunch of material flies off really fast and with a lot of energy. So that's, that's basically really what exciting. I did. Yeah. So how's that used in the sort of, not in the real world? Yeah, so there's a couple of aspects. And, and again, the science has probably progressed a lot since this. And I don't think this is really the application of it anymore. But kind of thin film deposition. So if you're thinking about kind of building chips or layers of things where you need really right. thin films, diamond coatings, various, those kind of things where you literally, are, so what you do is you fire that laser the material flies off very, very quickly. And then you put some kind of what's called a substrate in front of that. So you're kind of catching okay. the atoms, but they just form this really thin film on top well, of things. So, so, and then you can do all sorts of things to make that uh, work in kind of for electronics and, and various other things. Um, and then the other aspect is because you're, when you fire that laser and you've got material flying off, you're creating all sorts of very high energy particles. So you can kind of model the way things might work, for example, as a, something, a meteor is entering the atmosphere or something like that, or kind of space particles. So you could help predict kind of if things. we're going to die from <laughs> Well, if I we don't. send it a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I think if I could have done anything as, as useful as that, then I, I might have carried on in academia a little bit longer than I did. But um, yeah. I, I, it was definitely uh, an area that I'm happy to have left in my past, shall we say. That's being that specific. You know, in the long tail, that can add to a great discovery, but you have to be so patient. Yeah, it? and I, I do think that different people enjoy different things. Um, so I think that's part of it. It's like some people are just, you know, really happy to be in those kind of roles. I think the thing that would have helped me more to, you know what would have driven me to stay on more of a research path whereas i came out and i've very much been kind of in management and communication mm -hmm. of science ever since it would have been really understanding the context more and finding the passion around the context mm -hmm. of the science that you're doing so i think certainly for somebody like me i need i would have really needed to have connected how does this like have a major impact as yeah, we move yeah. forward? Does um, anyone know I'm in here? Like, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and it is a little bit like that. And I think lonely. I found it very, um, yeah, quite an isolating time. And and again, you're in my case, I, I definitely had a lot of people uh, who were part of the group who are also quite introverted and, mm. uh, you know, focused on their own experiments and their own work. So I think you do very much feel that you're, on your own a lot in those environments and I, I didn't really no. like that um. <laughs> how did you come to be the CEO of Interactive mm. Scientific so after I finished my PhD I did a whole bunch of different things I worked for the innovation team at the regional development agency and that was the first time that I had um, 
really thought about what innovation meant. Um, we also did what are now the SMART Awards at Innovate. They were delivered out of the regional, okay. regional development agencies. So the teams that I worked with were funding innovative companies. And I think that that really exposed me to the idea of, oh, R&D can be used, you know, in a very applications and user focused way. And so that started to kind of light a bit of a thing that I wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial. I then worked for the Royal Society of Chemistry. And again, my role was really broad. So lots of stuff that I carry right now around the ecosystem working together, about the fact that science education and science enterprise, whilst at the moment are relatively separate things you know I really want to bring those things together and I think that because my role at the Royal Society focused on education on policy on working with academics on working with industry on working on kind of global challenges and how together we're going to solve some of the global challenges that chemistry sits underneath and you can see that that still comes out through the work I'm doing now so kind of all of that was very much learning and exposing myself to different different ways of looking at science and then after that I wanted to have something that was a bit more portfolio focused because I'd found that I had not been able to do some of the creative things that I wanted to do and you know I was working really hard but it was on somebody else's agenda and I yep. kind of didn't want to do, I, I I, if that. I was going to work really really hard I wanted to do yeah. it you know for things that, that I could actually affect a change in so I did some part-time work with different startup companies and and some kind of organizations that work with startups as well so I'd just all this kind of portfolio type stuff I worked in the theater for a while too just to, and, yeah uh, get some and creative some stuff time out in, uh, in LA in LA yeah, yeah. How, what was the weirdest sort, thing sort of you saw in training. LA Oh, I don't know if I can say it on here. Is it like PG thirteen? No, it's not swearing and uh, talk of profanities and all of that. It's, okay, it sounds like a actually, good story already. no. This in fact, this was in San Francisco, which is when we were walking through the mission at about midnight. I feel like there's going to be transvestites involved. This is just because when I my first trip when I was seventeen, eighteen, I did a gap year, and then so we finished in northern Sabah. And then went over to Kuala Lumpur, which is the first time I went to a city in Malaysia. Ah. Proper, you know, like, yeah. um, and in this hostel. And then all of a sudden I found myself, <laughs> like, uh, hanging out with transvestites nice. in Kuala Lumpur. Well, I mean, there definitely were some in the, in the mission. But the, the, the thing I saw um, was, was somebody on their own pleasuring themselves on oh. the street. So that was interesting. I think in LA, it was actually a bit terrifying. I, I fainted later this day. And of course, you know, one of the problems in America is the fact that a lot of people with mental health problems end up on the street. And it is I'm getting really, really serious now. Really, like yeah. San Francisco and Vancouver. And, yeah. yeah is and it's in you your face. And, and literally. No I was, welfare. Yeah. Kind of in the same way. Yeah, and you can you can just see it. And I was just walking down the street, and and some lady like walked up to me right in my face and just screamed in my face, "I know what you've done. Um, you're not gonna get away with Which it." Which is like everyone's um, worst nightmare. Yeah. Imposter syndrome comes like, oh. large. <laughs> yeah, and then like I said later that day, I actually passed out. So I don't know if it was to do with that or not. Um, yeah, which isn't a thing I normally place, do. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, but also. Um, it was a bit of a respite for me because I went there to, to do actor training. And so my every day I just had to get up and go and I'd do like dance lessons and singing lessons and acting lessons. Were you and, doing lots of um, auditions as well? Um, no, not at that point. Yeah, because, I, you know, I, I didn't have any kind of visa to be able to work there. So yeah. it was literally just 
time training with other people who are also You're doing a true that. Lifelong learner, so I very much bit, am. Yeah. yeah, and I and I think well, we all have to be now, don't we? And I think that's why we're kind of really pushing for lifelong learning. But all these learning, things, all the skills go round. Yeah. So um, mm. you know, my husband used to be a um, uh, when he was sort of a student, a tour guide on the buses in Bath. So you know, <laughs> one of my friends just got a job doing really having similar. to stand yeah. up in front of tons of international mm-hmm. tourists when you're you know wildly hung over yeah and basically entertain people yeah and yeah and re- you know retain information present it in a in a way and he's a great public speaker as a result yeah um so the acting has definitely made it so that i am very comfortable on stage the the thing that's interesting in a business context is i still get incredibly nervous if i'm not happy with the story and i guess mm-hmm. that's the thing is that you're so I can kind of, I have the real benefit of not being nervous just about standing up in front of people. I can get rid of that bit. I'm, I, like I said, then it's about making sure I'm telling the right story yeah. and spending my time worrying about, <laughs> about that part of it. And, you know, the parts of, of course, you you have doubts when you're running a business and, and hoping that they don't kind of come to the surface too much at the wrong time. So that's yeah, that's yeah, the kind of thing. Being able to compartmentalise that yeah. is quite a skill. Yeah, you? and to really tell a good story. So, and because yeah. you have to, write the story now and so I'm like I'm no longer just performing somebody else's words I have to perform my own words and then I have to trust them in my own words and so that's the the more challenging bit for me and now I, I saw you so were sort of part of the project team behind TEDx oh yeah, yeah. and there's an amazing amount of entrepreneurs that seem to have some at some point had a yeah. events production I always think of Tim Ferriss as well in the podcast yeah. world that's how he sort of started yeah. out got to know a lot of these people and then and it was interesting because yeah. events had always been a part of the jobs. In fact, even when I was doing my PhD, I used to <laughs> used to do things to get out of the lab if I could. And and so I would run um, UCAS days. Um, I would run, you know, when all the giving tours, um, outreach events and stuff like that. I was always part of those things. So events was always um, a, a big thing for me as, as I moved through my career. And I, I think it still is now because I think it comes back to collaboration and sharing. Mm-hmm. And I think those, those things are important. And, and TEDx was was a it just came at the perfect time for me um like I said, that was when I, I'd come to, back to Bristol and I was working in um in, in these kind of portfolio roles and it was just such an opportunity to meet so many different people uh, and see things from a different perspective and I still have one of my closest friends who's also my next door neighbor we met through TEDx and I, I think yeah just getting exposed to things through a, diff- a different angle and I think that sciences in particular have have often been very traditional. A lot of people who work in the science industries have come through very traditional paths. There, there hasn't been a huge amount of deviation from mm-hmm. that. So obviously their kind of personal lives and their hobbies that, that kind of play into those, in, into what they bring uh, through something that's a bit more creative. And I think that one of the benefits that I have is by because of all those those things I've done that have been about seeing through things through different eyes, you can start to apply that to an industry that's a little bit more traditional. So yeah. I think that's that's quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And so where did we get to on the journey to oh, yeah. CEO of ISO? Oh, that's yeah. true. I didn't yeah. even get that. Um, so- <laughs> yeah, I like to talk a lot. Um, so, so, yeah, when I was working through all of these uh, – kind of different projects I'd actually through TEDx Bristol had met with the founders of ISI and I should say that the that ISI was founded about a year before I started working for it 
And that was because it got an Arts Council grant to do a project called Dance Room Spectroscopy um, and, and a dance tour called Hidden Fields. And so that was a tour that went around the world and it was about kind of a basic version of some of the things we do now, but but using physics simulations to create artistic effects and then having dancers interact with those effects. Yeah. Um, so it was this amazing visual artistic experience I think I may have experienced you a did. version of this. Yeah, you, you experienced a later version because we then brought it back to life yeah. at We the Curious, which is the science museum here in Bristol. And we did this. I, again, it was really cool because we um, were able to put an installation inside this kind of black box and people could go in. And then we, we'd actually updated it a bit for that so that users could do things like uh, turn up the temperature and then see the particles flying around okay, more quickly yeah, and yeah. they could change the visualisation. Um, we have scenes in that. So, so this was a project that was happening. I already knew the team prior to the establishment of ISI but like I said I wasn't there for the first that first year and and they came back from the tour and I was talking to the founders about it and it was all going to dissipate so um, one person was going off to America because he got uh he, he was taking a fellowship over to Stanford and then one person was a dancer who'd, who'd been part of the founding team. So they were kind of doing lots of other dance and choreography projects. And one person was a technical person. And he just kind of liked to work on different projects. So it was all kind of, OK, this was nice. You know, is there anything else? And I swooped in and went, well, there's some interesting data from when you've had young people in particular in here that show that by putting something in making it more visual more interactive people are asking very different questions about the science behind something and is there a way we can package this up so it becomes some kind of tool or experience that can be scalable because it definitely at that point was kind of this big theater experience Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that could ever pay for itself or really scale in 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 any way so um so that was when I came in and I, one of my first jobs was to write an Innovate grant, which was an an SBRI project. So it was 100% funded and we got that grant. And then we got some follow-on grant as well through that. So uh, the the founders kind of came together and went, you're doing a lot of the <laughs> the directing of this company. Do you want to be a director? And you're kind of being managing director right now. So do you want to be managing director? And so I suggest, and then kind of had a few terms around how, you know, my goals for the next couple of years and, and the targets around that. So cool. it really happened, yeah, in, in a step-by-step way. And I think since we've known each other, I've been familiar with your work with Nano Symbox mm-hmm. and probably more so the, the sort of schools-facing yep. content and development on that side. What's kind of next for ISI and then, say, next six months? Yeah. So thinking of this series in terms of the corporate training or in yeah with relation to industry as well yeah I should say we're doing a bit of a, a brand refresh so nano simbox will be no more um oh, as a brand then. yeah it will actually be called ISI learn and ISI learn is all built on a molecular visualization platform so we visualize molecules in an interactive way we put that into virtual reality and that got a lot of interest from the research community, especially because we did a collaboration with Oracle and the University of Bristol that showed that by kind of putting these molecular interactions into virtual reality, we could do certain things 12 times faster than we'd be able to do them in a virtual experience that was kind of on a 2D screen. So we started to get a lot of interest, yeah, like I said, from the research community who were interested in having this kind of 3D visualizer that they could interact with and use that to help them to better understand how 
uh, for example, a, a drug and a protein fit together. So that was an important uh, turning point for us because we, on the educational side of things, being just a science tool, and I say just in the context of we are not something that people are going to purchase school-wide. So we have to think really carefully about what our business models are and how we're actually going to you know, feasibly have a sustainable business model. We also have a goal around inclusion. So we wanted our education work to be as available and as free as possible to as many people as possible. So getting uptake from the R&D teams and Initially, that was in universities, but then it started to move more into an enterprise space. Means that we can think more about working in enterprise from a kind of revenue generation uh, side of things. And that allows those enterprises to both kind of feed back in from a financial perspective to what we do, which we can kind of drip into some of the education work. But it also means we're starting to tie together what's going on in research and what's going on in education. And so there's also opportunities for for people in the corporate sector to, you know, be able to communicate, visualize the molecules they're using, communicate around concepts that are really important to them. So so the reason I kind of took, brought up the rebranding yeah. is this idea that it's all one molecular visualization platform. And actually, we're going to be upgrading that into kind of a molecular innovation platform so that it can enable people to collaborate and communicate as well. But those terms I've just used, collaboration, communication, well, that's what learning is all based mm. upon. So we kind of take this this single platform and have a number of different end uses for yeah, it. Yeah. And for us, we... We really know, uh, based on the work we've already done in education, that we can very quickly increase understanding of concepts. And one of the really important factors in terms of our next next step is that corporates, um, science enterprises, are predicted to be spending $100 billion on the in the next 10 years on digitizing their work. So moving much more into these digital tools. That means there's a huge training gap <laughs> in theory. If they're going to be spending all this money and moving towards what's called kind of a digital first approach, then they are also going to need to train people very, very quickly. And for me, the, the kind of the vision around that is actually creating tools that can do both at the same time, that can do R&D and situational training all at once you know we're all very used to this with our with our mobiles with the digital tools we use on a personal basis we learn them very quickly because we have to and that's ultimately where I want the, the you know the corporate training to go is let's let's consolidate these two things together let's use digital tools to both kind of predict how molecules and, and different scientific processes are going to happen but also use that as a way to learn very quickly it's almost like so, your technical specialist might use it to come up with new i don't know if compounds is the right yep uh, yeah phrase going back to my like a lead, lead compound, <laughs> yep. but also to train the non-technical specialists that yep. you know about you know what what their work yeah, is in essentially exactly so so i kind of described the vision which is very much kind of that in the future being able to do that all in one really and have it having these tools that can communicate mm -hmm. um as well as do that the research and development but the i guess the interim steps are that we already know that our tools can be used to train <laughs> we know that they increase understanding they increase speed to understanding actually the speed to competence is is something that's really important so so in the interim we are looking to work with people in the corporate sector to provide training around you know it might be the certain compounds they're working with um sales teams for example mm -hmm. need to understand the 
the science behind what it is they're selling and so we can we know we can do that very quickly with the kind of with the tools that we've developed and we've also built things in a very modular way so we can be quite bespoke about that as right, well right. so we can very easily it's, it's a platform technology it's not just another piece of content another piece of content so and do you see any threat with technologies like ai in terms of taking out the manual process of tinkering with these things or do you think it will be coincide so coming back to our conversation earlier about kind of as we as we move more to automated processes um and perhaps by having different people with a more diverse background thinking about how that actually plays out. I think one of the things that I am very passionate about is making sure that we have doorways into that data um, and or that those processes. If we are going to automate a lot of things, and an AI certainly is going to play a role, we need to make sure we can validate that information. And so it, it plays yeah. a role in terms of the visual transparency of what's going exactly. on. Exactly. Well. Yeah. Really interesting. And so it's it's opening that door to mm. to the kind of. The, and you can just be like, oh, oh God, the AI's gone mad. Look exactly. It's creating a monster. I know. I don't know if I'm just like <laughs> some kind of catastrophizer, if that's the right word. I think that's but really you know, though. I think it's important yeah. because we do. AI is so sexy right now. And and certainly if we were to, we, we could have a strategy that focuses more around machine learning and AI instead of visualization, collaboration, communication. However, if we were to do that, we would be ignoring this thing that I'm really passionate about, which is we, we need to make sure we have checks and balances. Mm-hmm. AI is pushed so hard and like investors will invest in AI and machine learning. And, and I think that, that that kind of little missing piece needs to be how do we make sure that we can we can check in with those things oh 100% yeah what are buckminster fullerene <laughs> molecules <laughs> a buckminster fullerene is c60 so there are 60 carbon atoms all joined together in what looks like a football um, and so these are particles that well there's all sorts of things that are postulated in terms of how they could be used. They're, they're kind of little particles that are found in space and, the, and sometimes in industri- industrial processes, but they're kind of cages. So you, so there's this idea that you could potentially put things inside the cage and then mm-hmm. open it up. So uh, again, kind of coming back to that idea of drugs and how they work, you know, if you could put some kind of active agent inside this little cage and then it doesn't open up until it's kind of gone through your system, then okay. some weird, you know, drug delivery. I but like the, those great. things are all kind of very much pie in the sky, but that's, yeah, that's that's what C6, C60 is. I'm so on learn.nanosimbox.io, um, you can go in and have a look at, um, at C60. That's what I was looking at yeah. yesterday, having a take yeah. Having a little play. And then in terms of going back to industry, mm. um, you mentioned it before. Yeah. Have you got any other kind of active partners or people that you're thinking about working with? To- yeah, so, so most of the people are people I can't necessarily kind of name names, but there's kind of different tiers we're talking to. So there's the tier one scientific corporates so a lot of them are in the pharmaceutical industry or fast-moving consumer goods so things like um, P&G or uh, Unilever not that those are necessarily the specific ones so working with their kind of a cross-section so we're working with the R&D team the innovation teams and and then somebody at the executive level so um, because what we're talking about is things we don't want to just be a 10% better. We want to make transformations. So so in, in those cases, so pharmaceutical, it's, it's about accelerating that drug discovery process, but making sure we have these doorways like I've already described. So people being able to 
to look in and understand them quickly. I, I should say that the training aspects of things are really things that we're only just exploring as part of the Ray Barnes mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. that we've won through UFI. So that that side of it in the corporates is is relatively early stages yeah, still. Yeah. And um, will you sort of triangulate that with R&D departments at universities or further edu- yeah. education colleges? where they're perhaps yes yeah so I think that's again part of the value of having a having a platform technology is that you can kind of bring these different different aspects together when those users when it's appropriate to that user group so in particular we've done a number of case studies with universities and they're both in uh, undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and in R&D. And I think universities are a very natural space where where R&D and education comes together. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that more broadly. And that's definitely something that, or if you do, it's very much through that university track. And it's right. quite an elite, narrow track. And so we're actually... I was just thinking, because you mentioned Bristol before. Yeah. So I met David Langley, who's now mm, Enlight yeah. and... Yeah, I guess they're trying to sort of broaden that or connect it to industry a little bit. Yeah. It's a, it's a small project and a big, big Certainly. World and I, I know the University of Bristol have definitely been working on, since since the new Vice-Chancellor has come in, one of his big passions was around kind of creating these courses that are innovation with certain degrees. And I think that was, okay. yeah, and, and David Langley's been working on that. So that's the the idea of doing kind of innovation with chemistry and innovation with whatever I think history I heard somebody was doing and so so that's that's quite an interesting one um I I heard talk as well and I think this is the case that they're doing a kind of computer science with uh, you know yeah oh that's interesting yeah 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 Yeah. I didn't realize they're doing it across other subjects yeah so and like I said I don't really know the full scope of it but I do hope that in some ways that we'll be involved as we move forward because it's good to have those close links with with the local universities as well as the the ones that are a little bit further afield but yeah the the idea of work of trying to create that link between education and and the corporate sector is something that is important to us and we've been working with some FE colleges and the one of the overriding things that's coming out of a lot of the the things I've been looking at at the moment is just the lack of accessibility of kind of knowledge about how industry works so and this is actually in universities as well as school and and colleges but people find it very it's incredibly hard to get work experience you know I know it's something that the Royal Society of Chemistry are looking at as well um, is how do you get work experience we get so many requests because mm-hmm. you know but we're a tiny company we can't take that many people on because it's, and this is interesting because I think this goes back to productivity doesn't it mm-hmm. it's, everyone's obsessed about you know productivity for obvious reasons so it's kind of like, if, well, this is going to slow me down, but then yeah. it's kind of, it needs to have both. Yeah, and a- and it's this, the, there is a, a real challenge in science that there is very little transparency about what the actual jobs involve. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to go down a science path, you know, certainly in the past and, and, and as it is now, you, you often have to have made decisions when you're 14 or 15 years old. And and actually they say that you, you've you already kind of decided whether you're sciencey or not by the time you're about eight. <laughs> Crazy, really. So if we could allow people to have more exposure and get more hands-on and understand better what goes on behind those closed doors that is a research lab, then we can start to, to kind of create more of a pipeline. And Are, are you going to send Learn to mm. the academic at CERN? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you need to. Yeah. 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 That was a great Idea. example of um, <laughs> slightly challenged science uh, culture. Yeah, exactly. And I think we kind of need to break down some of these mm-hmm. doors. Yeah. 
and and actually we talk about productivity but I think I prefer to talk about effectiveness Mm -hmm. and because the especially when you think about it on a team by team basis for example if somebody's doing drug discovery often that's like an individual person's work and that's just that individual being more productive or that certain line of something being more productive doesn't necessarily you know play into the overall effectiveness and that's why you know we're really championing communication and collaboration because it's those things ultimately and the sorts of transformations and shifts that they can provide that are gonna take us to a place where we really can tackle some of the problems like healthcare problems or climate change and going back to collaboration I I was at this the same panel that I mentioned before but the CEO of Digital Promise and he was talking about you know at school again you're you're and university you're predominantly measured on your individual effort but he would not recruit someone if he thought that they had an issue with teamwork mm, and collaboration. Mm. But at university, some forms of collaboration are deemed plagiarism. And yeah. at the same time, you know, I know someone that you worked with in a university said that students don't really like group work because, you know, they're obsessed with getting their grades yeah. because they know that's the currency in the industry. So Absolutely. It's very difficult. And there is, you certainly see, I see it in the people we bring through. People who are in more of the creative industries have, mm. and, and this is why I think for me, having a period of time when I worked in the theatre, that's such a collaborative process from the beginning. And you kind of realise that it's that you kind of sacrifice your own individual yeah, productivity for the greater good, so to speak. It's that and thing it's, starting off big and yeah, coming in, isn't it? Exactly. And, and so I think the, I actually, I gave a talk at Badminton School, which is an an incredibly good, very nice um, school here in Bristol. And I should say that the girls and, and young women that I was talking to there were a lot more aware of the world than I am, I'm sure, even now. Um, but the so I was giving a talk about innovation. And one of the themes that kind of I was... I was bringing up and they actually articulated way better than me was the idea of being an individual that is part of the group. So it's, it's like, how can I, as an individual work to thrive, but recognize that I am part of something mm-hmm. that is bigger and that, that sometimes my job might be about making other people more effective, not just about making myself more effective. Mm-hmm. So I think that these are the kind of skill sets that are really important and that are lacking at the moment. And we really need to find ways of breaking some of those things down. Love it. What are you reading at the moment and why? Oh, I got a few on on the go. Um, I actually uh, just finished reading, is it called Transcription by, I literally finished reading it yesterday. That's a fiction book. And I always have a fiction book on the go. Partly the same reason as I do gymnastics. Mm. I, I like to kind of step away. And I have been reading... <laughs> I've been reading Blitz Scaling, which is just a bit frustrating, essentially, for a <laughs> for a startup. Um, so that's Reid Hoffman talking okay. about if you throw lots and lots of money at stuff and get lots and lots of people using it very, very quickly, then you might have a chance at actually making that business a good like success. Expo's <laughs> approach, just consolidating everything in something. Yeah. yeah, and so I think I can I can see from the point of view of somebody who's been a serial founder and has lots of money and is investing back yeah. into it that that might be their perspective. It's um, You need to write, write the antidote to that book. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally buy into everything they're saying. It's just I don't have the, <laughs> however many... The money, yeah, yeah, somebody just throw 40 million or something <laughs> this way, then then we'll, we'll go for it. Um, so yeah, that's quite interesting. 
And I also have Solve for Happy. I don't know. Oh, yes, that's Mo Yes, it, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I've just started reading really that book as well. Way. Yeah, and, and I think to just come like full circle back to some of the themes we were talking about at the beginning, uh, that I think life is always going to throw us all sorts of different challenges and, and you can kind of look through all sorts of different eyes as to how you step through those things. And well, I loved his very simple message, which is, you know, stop trying to add things to make yourself happy, mm-hmm. start taking things away. Yeah which is yeah really useful yeah i i really buy into that i i was certainly something in the company where we've we've worked very hard to simplify things and and that's kind of given us a a new zest for what we're doing and a bit of a kind of fresh approach um a bit of a rebirth so yeah definitely believe in that final question being a buddy at the Terence Higgin Trust yeah. for 13 years what has that meant to you and the people you support yes so it's interesting because you in a role as a buddy uh, at the Terence Higgins Trust and I, I actually don't really do very much anymore but you support a single person in a very intense way or in, yeah and in a, in a very one-to-one way so it's not you know not lots of different people and yeah. those kind of things you you really are working and building a relationship with an individual who has been diagnosed with HIV and the person I worked with uh, she it was very recently diagnosed when I first started working with her the I started doing it when I was doing my PhD and again it sort of plays on some of the themes we've already talked about that idea of looking at my life and saying what's in it and what what's of interest to me and and I wanted to find a way of giving back, you know, like I was so consumed with my own challenges mm. around like doing a PhD or, or a job, but whatever it might be. And I was like, oh, I kind of want to, yeah, to find a way to, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And there, there wasn't a specific, or I had, I had said, I, I did my work experience in a, in a science lab. <laughs> and I had said when I came out of that work experience at 16, oh, I want to find a cure for HIV and my godfather, who'd been my who'd, who'd let him, who is a scientist, um, a research scientist, working in those kind of areas, said, "Yeah, you might be the right sort of timing." And and I guess so. It was it was very much when I was growing up, something that was in the news a lot. Well, I and guess we it grew was, up with that big AIDS, yeah, um, huge stigma, and and, yeah. and then the yeah the the, the grave like yeah, AIDS. and just seemed like this big scary thing. And and then I met somebody who worked for the Terence Higgins Trust and she was just somebody who I felt was a really um she was a bit of a mentor actually at the time and and so and, and I really respected her and and her approaches and she was a very rounded person and so I went and and did the training and you do an intensive training because obviously there's yeah. there's so many facets involved there's the the biological side of things kind of drugs and and how this disease affects people's body there's a stigma the mental health and so it's such a a challenging thing for somebody to be faced with, especially when they're first diagnosed. And and so, it was, yeah, I, I was very thankful that the Terence Higgins Trust put on this amazing training that, like I said, was was many, many hours over quite a large period of time. So that when I was able to kind of work with somebody, I could actually support them. And and I think just knowing that that person has somebody who is outside of their day-to-day life like that was that's the most important thing uh, that's that's what I I hope I, I brought um was was a, a different perspective and and her what she used to say was 
it's nice because I can relax because I know like you know everything it's fine and I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not and I can just you, you know have to repeat your story over yeah and over again as well, exactly exactly and and like you said is it, when do you bring something like that up mm-hmm. I you know it's not it's not really anybody else's business but until it is and mm. and so yes I think that it it was a very Port, it, it was and and can, it continues to be a, a really important thing that like I said I unfortunately when you're <laughs> when you're a CEO of a company yeah. then yeah certain things drop and, and and also with that budgeting system it's you're only meant to be with a certain person for a certain amount of time um yeah. but actually it's it's come up a lot recently so I'm, I'm thinking about kind of tapping back in <laughs> but yeah it's really important Amazing. Well, if people are listening and they mm-hmm. would like to find out more about what you do or contact yep. you, how do they get um, to So that? you can find me on Twitter, Becky underscore Sage. You can just get in touch there or interactivescientific.com. There's a contact form on there so you can you can get in touch with us. But yeah, tweet me is probably the... I don't know if I'm more responsive on Twitter than I am anywhere else. Probably. That's, uh, yeah, it's good, good for me. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Becky. Great. Thank you. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening in and I do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you. Don't forget that for events you might be interested in around the world, you can go to the edtechpodcast.com forward slash events. That's all for now. Thanks for subscribing and listening. Bye bye.